Hello, and thanks for tuning in to The Expressionist, the podcast where Olivia Rosenman and Helen Reinstrand shine a light on expressions, idioms, and phrases, and let all the cats out of all the bags, leaving their origins and histories laid bare. Now, before we begin this episode, I'd just like to share a response. A grandmother, and quite a wise one at that, explained that sucking eggs is indeed a done thing in households with chickens in the backyard or in the barn. According to this grandmother, a small hole was made on the top and the bottom of the shell to facilitate the suction, and the egg was sucked out of the top, making for a delicious, warm and health-giving snack. This grandmother is, in fact, my mother, proving that mother always knows best. Her mother, my grandmother, was also adept in sucking eggs. Now, back to this episode, and do stay tuned because we are going to allay any fear about the sky falling and examine why we draw lines in the sand. Olivia, the sky is falling. Oh my God! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I wanted to talk about this phrase because I recently confused some students with it. Uh, One of the things that I teach is academic skills at university, um, so like essay writing, referencing, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, And a little while ago, I was covering a class for one of my colleagues, and the student's task in this class was to practice paraphrasing, which is, of course, an essential academic skill, uh, they had an example passage that ended something like, students become better writers when they realize that they can write about their own experiences without the sky falling. And so everyone was like, yes, of course, we'll do that. We'll get right on it. Um, And so all all good. And I walked around, though, a few minutes later and discovered that they were all like, I don't know what this part means. What do you mean (laughs) the sky is falling? So I assume you know what it means, Olivia. Yeah, maybe I could demonstrate the meaning with a question. Maybe they would—they didn't really want to ask you what it meant because they were afraid that if they ask you what it meant, the sky would fall. <laughs> I mean, I think that sort of works. I, hopefully, I'm not so intimidating a teacher. <laughs> I don't know, Helen. I reckon you could be pretty scary. <laughs> I don't think so. I—I uh, I assume a goofy, a goofy <laughs> approach. <laughs> Should have mm-hmm. my teaching philosophy. So I think it's reasonably clear from what you said that... Um, Perhaps you should just clarify. Yeah, just to clarify, uh, what it means is the end of the world. Uh, so Panic! Um, exactly. That's the correct response to the end of the world. Mm. Uh, so And it didn't make any sense to these students because their first language is not English. Um, and so fair enough, without any context, it doesn't really make any sense um, in that way. So it's an idiom, of course. I just love those kinds of moments uh, when something that seems completely meaningful and obvious, in fact, to you because you've grown up with it is illuminated in all of its obscurity. So that was a great moment. I thought it would be worth talking about. So what it comes from is the English version of a story called, in British English, Henny Penny. Uh, And Australian English is the same, I suppose, because that's the version that I know, Henny Penny. But in the US uh, and North America, it's known as Chicken Little or sometimes actually Chicken Lickin'. That's a very strange word to put next to chicken. Chicken licken. Yeah, because it makes me think of fried chicken. It does yeah. make me think of fried chicken but also. Is that just because we are a victim of advertising? Like finger licking good? Yes, I think that is why. I think that's why we think that. Yeah, I guess so. It has the same kind of pattern as henny penny, I suppose. Um, what, well, fried chicken does? No, no. <laughs> Uh, chicken licking, henny right. penny, right. foxy loxy, I think is one of the characters. Right. So when you say the Goosey same Lucy. pattern, like you mean, yeah, like the same rhythm, the same sort of. Yeah. There must be a word for that. Rhyming name. Mm-hmm. 
So what happens in... It's just unfortunate because we eat chickens and so yeah. licking, you don't want to put too close to like a, a character in a children's book. Maybe that would be my thought. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Chicken licking. Yeah. It would be like calling, you know, a baby cow like a bunchin crunchin. <laughs> <laughs> Beefy teethy. Yeah, yeah. That, that's better. That's, that is much better than my example. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess it is something along those lines. We have a strange relationship with animals. Let's, let's just That's true. say that. So what happens in this story is a chicken, Henny Penny, has an acorn or a pea or a leaf, depending on the version, fall on its head. And it deduces from this that the end of the world is nigh. Um, so like that the fabric of the universe is actually collapsing in on them. And she understandably panics and starts running. In some versions, she's running with the intention of telling the king, but in other ones, she's just running blindly. Either way, on her way, she meets a series of other animals, mostly other birds like geese and ducks. And every time the chicken meets someone new, she says, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. So the repetition of this phrase in the story makes it what's called a cumulative tale or sometimes a chain tale. And in this case, it develops a sense of panic, as you can understand. So you could say that the panic itself accumulates with every time that the phrase is repeated. Would you say that maybe Henny Penny was running around a bit like a chicken with her head cut off? There just seem to be connections there but I guess if you're a chicken with your head cut off I mean it's beyond panic stations right that the world is definitely ending yeah for you yeah for yeah, you yeah yeah um, but you're right no people use the phrase in the same way like a chicken with your head cut off I suppose it's just like people say that that's what chickens do right well, that's what they say and I dare say the wise grandmother mentioned at the beginning of the episode because she has quite a bit of experience with chickens would probably know that mm-hmm. so uh mum yes what happens when you cut the head off a chicken? Oh, well, the body flaps about for a long time. Well, not for a long time, like for a little while. Does it run around anywhere? It kind of more falls about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't get any distance. I guess okay. you'd be a bit disoriented. Yeah, without, without your head. head. <laughs> this is true. Okay, it makes sense. The head doesn't move. The head just flies around. Okay. Okay. I think so I've got a good mental image of that. Mm. All right, thank you. It used to be my specialty killing chicken. Yeah, you do seem to be our resident chicken expert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you familiar with the word paruspex? No, what is that? Paruspex. It means telling the future by looking at chicken innards. It's an ancient Roman thing. Wow. Those it is Romans. an ancient Roman thing, yeah. In it fact, the, the, the Harrispex is the official who whose job it was. Yeah. Looking it up. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yes. That's it. So wow. you're, you're the Harrispex. Is that what you're telling us? <laughs> well, no, I'm just telling you another interesting chicken fact. <laughs> Keep them coming. <laughs> Derivative of Harrispex is Harrispicy. That's quite Can good. Can say Rosa is a very Harrispicy lady? <laughs> Oh, dear. So in some versions, the ending is that a fox takes advantage of the situation and eats all of the animals. Either it lures them into his lair or follows them into the forest and just eats them one by one. I I never was told that version of the story. (laughs) No, you obviously have uh, the nice version, like I did, that sort of clean, happy ending one where Henny Penny and her panicked followers eventually meet a wise animal who restores calm and reason. Sounds like the Disney version that we we consumed. 
funny you should say that, um, because the Foxy version is actually the one that the first 1943 Disney cartoon called Chicken Little plays on, uh, which is not to be confused with the 2005 digital animation feature movie where Chicken Little is voiced by Zach Braff. Wait, 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 wait. So you're saying the Disney version actually featured the fox that ate the chickens one by one? Yes, it did. Oh, Um, my God. And it's actually an amazing thing, this older one, the wartime one. It's such an interesting piece of cultural history. In this version, the fox actually sets it all up, and I actually would like to play a little clip of it. Oh, yes, please. If we can arrange that. We can. He looks nice and stupid. If you tell him a lie, don't tell a little one. Tell a big one. Unquote. This is the voice of doom speaking. Special bullet. Flash. The sky is falling. A piece of it just hit you on the head. Now be calm. Don't get panicky. Run for your life! The sky is falling! The, sk- the sky is falling! A piece of it just hit me on the head! The sky is falling! Hurry, hurry! hurry. All right, I think that, that's enough. The sky, the sky is falling! There you are, you see? Oh, that was most enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. Very good. <laughs> I felt panicked, actually, once once the music started going and the running and the screaming. I felt, I felt like the sky was falling. Success. Uh, and so at the beginning, you hear the fox quoting from a book. The original idea, again, this is 1943, was to have the fox reading Mein Kampf. Uh, so you get the idea, right? This is an anti-Nazi propaganda film made by Disney. It's a different era, isn't it, when they're considering putting excerpts of Mein Kampf into a children's cartoon? Yes. Well, that would have been, I suppose, only like it would have been just written on the book. Yeah, right. But then the kid would have been like, Mom, what's Mein Kampf? And then that would have been like a pretty full-on conversation. Well, I guess it was a full-on time. It's true. Uh, so, but they, yeah, they they backed away from that, and they put it's uh, the book is titled Psychology, uh, which you <laughs> see at the beginning. Yeah, so it's like the psychology of controlling people, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so all through, this is only a ten minute little short cartoon. There are these quotes on how you can sort of control people. So that's such a fascinating thing, I think. Everyone should go and watch it. Absolutely. We'll put the link on our show notes. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite enjoyable. I mean, I just watched it. Oh, it's, a, and... it's, you know, the most fun that you'll ever have with anti-Nazi propaganda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think that that little film is a really great example of how important this particular phrase has become in our culture. Uh, and it appears quite often in various corners of pop culture. For example, there's also a song from 1949 by blues musician Lyndon Hopkins. This is called Henny Penny Blues. It's about a woman that he likes, but who won't have sex with him. Oh. (laughs) Well, I don't like chicken, but I own the big fat hen. Oh. (laughs) I don't like chicken, but I own the big fat hen. Hmm. Also from a different time. She cackled for me, but she laid for the other man. You get the idea. 
<laughs> he doesn't refer to her as Henny Pelly until right at the end. No, just a big fat hen. Just, yeah, that he owns. Jeez. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, the beautiful world of pop music. So wait, 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 wait. Let's go back. It means the world is ending, though. Right, yeah, sort of. It refers to an extreme or hysterical overreaction to a situation. So obviously Lighten Hopkins has taken Henny Penny right out of uh, context, really. Or maybe the implication is that he feels that the sky is falling because uh, Henny Penny uh, won't give it up. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if that's the message he was trying to, <laughs> trying to convey. <laughs> but I feel like, these days at least, when I've heard it used, it's most often in the context of the sky's not falling, like as a mm-hmm. reassurance. Yeah, I think that's often true. But also it's used to mock people who respond in this way, like in, like hysterically. So it's not necessarily reassuring, but it is like, don't worry, the sky's not falling. Like, just chill out, man, kind oh, of thing. It's a bit sarcastic. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. So I have a question. Yes. Because... I certainly remember reading this story as a child Mm. in the 80s. Uh, You said it goes back, this cartoon was in the 40s. But how, where where did the story start? It's very extremely old story, actually. There is a version that's about 2,500 years old, which is part of the Jataka Tales, which is a huge collection of Buddhist scripture from India. And they all tell stories from Buddha's past lives. They are morality tales, basically. In this one, known as The Sound the Hare Heard, A hare is pondering the concept of the end of the world when a fruit falls nearby from a tree and makes a loud sound. Uh, And that is what sets the hare off running and the general panic for all of the animals. And so in that case, it's a lion who in a future life becomes Buddha, who is the wise animal that restores calm. So basically the Jataka is kind of like Aesop's fables for Buddha. Yeah, I guess you could put it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Helen, I want to know... How does a story migrate from India mm-hmm. two and a half thousand years ago yes. to now? So how does it become Henny Penny? Mm. Yeah, so this Buddhist version from the Jataka tales is generally linked to oral stories that spread across Europe. There's not really a clear answer to that question in, in one way, much like, I suppose, the spread of many of those old, old stories and language itself. <laughs> <laughs> So, but at some point, I suppose they made their way into Europe, um, or maybe they would have developed in parallel. You're the linguist; maybe you know how this works, um, or maybe both stories are from some uh, common ancestor story. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good question. I don't I don't know how it works, but people were moving as early as that mm-hmm. time. Yeah. So you know, people take their stories with them. Well, there. I mean, I know that there are a lot of European words or languages that actually have a common root with Sanskrit, right? Absolutely, absolutely. The Indo-European languages. Yes. And so what I can say is that the first time the version we know, the European version, is recorded in writing is in Danish. It's in 1823. Um, And in 1840 seems to be the date of the earliest translation into English. Although already by 1834, the Oxford English Dictionary lists a sample of it being used in the idiomatic way that we know in a paper called the St. James Chronicle. I want to read this one because it seems familiar in many ways. So this is it. They talk of the astounding effect produced by the news of the ejection of the Whig radical administration. But we can assure them that in our part of the country, the sky has not fallen. 
Mm, yeah, so it's funny that quote dates back to, what did you say, 1834? Yes. Because, you know, it almost reads like current affairs in a way. It does, yeah. It has, it's reminiscent, I think, of a lot of examples that I found on Twitter of people using it to put down other people who've been distressed by the election of Donald Trump in particular. So as well as people being worried by things like climate change or increasing rates of hate speech, hate crime, all those kinds of things. Guess where else I look to find out about this phrase? Where? On Urban Dictionary, as I of often course. like to. Um, and the one that I liked that they had on there was defining it as a really fun game where you tell your friend that the sky is falling and then you hit them on the head with a closed fist. That reminds <laughs> me of a really fun game in a similar vein that I used to play with my sisters called 52 Pickup. What is 52 Pickup? You get a pack of cards, mm-hmm. you throw it on the floor, and it's 52 Pickup. Oh. But for the other person. Not for, yeah, okay. Okay, well, I'm going to draw a line in the sand here and say that I will never play 52 Pickup with you, Olivia. (laughs) (laughs) Helen. Yes. I hope you don't mind me revealing on this podcast your intolerance to quail eggs. Oh, I guess that's all right. (laughs) Now, I have to commend you for your approach to this whole issue of the quail egg intolerance because I know that you do quite like them. I mean, what's not to like there? It's just like a delicious little mini egg. It's so small. Yeah, but but that they don't agree with you, so you've really just drawn a line in the sand and uh, if there's a dish that has quail eggs in it, you just won't eat it. Am I right? That's right. Um, I've had, you know, three strikes and I'm out (laughs) on the topic of quail eggs. So this is what it means. It means to establish a limit or boundary or a level of tolerance or a point beyond which one will not go. So there's two subtly different meanings there. You could use it as establishing a boundary or a pre-existing boundary that you won't cross. So one of them maybe is like a personal boundary and the other is like a taboo. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. Or Mm. just a kind of a no-no of some description. Mm. What is the origin of this phrase? Well, there are a few origin stories. In fact, there are many sandy origins, (laughs) which makes a lot of sense because don't you think sand just, just screams history? Yes, I do. I think, you know, there's pyramids and all kinds of great ruins and stuff under the sand. Okay, good. I wasn't sure if that was just me in my weird brain. Good. I'm glad you agree with that. I'll go through these origin stories chronologically, and we're going to start in the Seleucid Empire that is an empire in the part of the world that is now Kuwait, Afghanistan, and bits of Pakistan and Turkmenistan, Mm -hmm. around 175 to 164 BCE. And this guy, this guy called Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Epiphanes? Epiphanes. He was a Hellenistic Greek king, a king of the Seleucid Empire. And right. so he's, he's very famous for this story that I'm about to tell you. Also, just a famous persecutor of the Jews. Oh, there are a diamond dozen mm. Mm-hmm. Those guys. Yeah. So, okay. So Antiochus, after he was done with, or perhaps at the same time as he was persecuting the Jews, he also decided to invade Egypt. So it was 168 BC and he starts marching towards Alexandria with his armies and the Egyptians don't have the means to fully defend themselves. So they appeal to the Romans for help. And the Romans, they don't send an army. They just send this one guy. <laughs> So the guy they send... Is he a really big guy? Well, I no. I mean, I'm not really sure exactly about his bodily measurements, uh, but he must have been... He must have been 
A great guy. A great guy. And this guy's name was Gaius, hilariously. Gaius Populus, because Guy. Guy, Guy. (laughs) (laughs) Get it? This guy? Anyway. Uh, Gaius Populus Leinus. Nice. I'm probably terribly mispronouncing that, even though I studied Latin. So... Gaius runs into Antiochus and his crew around four miles, which is approximately 6.5 kilometers from Alexandria. So cutting it a bit fine. Yeah. Yeah. And basically this guy, he just stands in front of Antiochus and his whole army. And he says, listen, mate, the Romans aren't sanctioning this invasion. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to draw a line around you in the stand and you should not step out of that circle or step across that line until you have a response for me to take back to the Roman Senate. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So basically Antiochus withdraws. He's not willing to go against the whole might of the Roman Empire, all thanks to the quick-witted thinking of Gaius. Obviously the Romans thought that they could rely on this Gaius to, uh, you know, come through with the goods. As we said, pretty cool Gaius. So then in the book of John, Jesus writes a message in the sand to a whole bunch of people who are about to stone a woman to death. Why does he write it in the sand? Well, I guess they didn't have any paper back then. Yeah, but it's, I mean, I guess it depends on the sand, but it's not going to be especially legible, is it? Yeah, come on. Writing in the sand's extremely legible. Haven't you ever written like HR for, you know, so-and-so forever <laughs> in the sand? When you were yeah, young? of course. But I, yeah, it has to be wet sand, I guess is my point. Doesn't have to have to be wet sand. Anyway, this is, I mean, a ridiculous argument. <laughs> so they don't have any paper in, and they don't have. I just anything. feel like he's not really committed to the like to the message. He's not found somewhere better. Go no. on. Sorry. All right, moving on. The most recent story, however, is set in the Common Era, mm-hmm. after the sea of BCE, at the Siege of Alamo in 1863. And the Siege of Alamo is part of the Battle of Alamo, which is part of the Texas Revolution. Do you know about the Texas Revolution? The Texas Revolution? No. What is it? Well, basically in 1863, I think it went for a few years, Mexican troops fought the colonists who were living in the area that was then Texas and they took it and it became the Republic of Mexico. Oh, okay. So Texas actually has quite a conflict-filled history. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of parts of the United States have that kind of, especially the South. Especially the South. So when we say uh, Mexico, do we mean like Spanish Mexico? Do we mean indigenous Mexicans? I think we mean Spanish Mexico. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's quite a bit more recent. We've got a real spread of origin stories here. But hang on. Where does it actually come from in the Alamo? Right. So basically what's happening is things aren't going so well for the colonists. And this guy called William Travis Barrett, he gets his sword and he draws a line in the sand and he says to his men, look, those of you who truly support the cause and are willing to stay here and fight, step over this line. So it's a very symbolic Uh, pep talk, essentially, a symbolic pep talk. Right. So it's – oh, no, it's not. I was going to say it's like – do you remember in PE (laughs) when you would um, be playing team games in sport and you would have to, like, pick people for your team? Oh, yeah, pick your team, yeah. Yeah. And you never want to be the last person picked. Exactly, yeah, but it's nothing like that, actually. It's nothing like that. It's (laughs) self-selecting. It's definitely (laughs) self-selecting. So – One thing that I'm noticing about this phrase is there's quite a lot of war going on. Absolutely. 
There is a lot of war. It's a rather bellicose phrase, you might say. Mm. And I mean, I guess that makes sense on one hand because it's about boundaries and Mm -hmm. borders. In fact, George Bush Sr. used the phrase himself when he sent troops to Saudi Arabia and hence begun the Gulf War. Ah, okay. Right, yeah, that's quite a famous soundbite, isn't it? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And does it come up anywhere else in uh, more recent usage? Yeah, and following along with this war theme, there have been a couple of films called A Lion in the Sand, one in 2009, and I just would like to read you the catchphrase of this film. Okay. It's called A Lion in the Sand. Two US Marines lost in the wasteland of Iraq, fighting insurgency, the environment, their own ideologies, and eventually each other. To survive. Oh, amazing. Yeah. The and wasteland of Iraq. Yeah. I yeah. bet Iraqis feel pretty happy about that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and 2004, another film, Straight to TV, mm-hmm. The War on Terror is being fought at close range. Do you find it, Helen, to be a particularly combative phrase when you've heard it used? As in, do people use it usually as part of like a, an argument or something? Mm. Seems kind of parental, right? Um, mm. I'm drawing a line in the sand, you know, from now on. Yeah, maybe. When do people use it? All right. Well, for example, I mean, I think I've basically drawn a line in the sand and I'm not going to see any more James Bond movies. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Just last one. I just, just, I mean, I don't understand. So why is the same sexist story told over and over again in various different settings with various different men? Why is that interesting to people? I don't understand. I don't have strong feelings about it. And while the sexism does irritate me... um, I think what people like about them is just that they're pretty camp. They're like silly action movies. They don't pretend to not be. I guess so. Have you drawn any lines in the sand? Other than around quail eggs? Other than around quail eggs. Be a pretty small line to go around the quail eggs. Yeah, you just need a little one. Um, I have drawn lines in the sand in my life, I suppose. Everyone has to at some point. It's true. Part of living. Adulting. (laughs) That's what they say, isn't it? It's part of adulting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Do you think we should draw a line in the sand around this episode? I think so. It's probably time to wrap it up. So thanks for joining us again for The Expressionists. Remember, you can get in touch with us on Twitter or on Facebook. We are at xpodcast, that's E-X podcast. And we would love to hear your thoughts and take your requests for expressions to investigate. See you later. Bye. <laughs>